The question this morning is how should Christians think about sin? We began looking at this question last week from Romans 6, and Paul is going to come at the question, the answer to the question from two different angles. He says that a Christian's identity first shapes the way they view sin, and then also a Christian's design shapes how they view sin. Last week we looked at identity. And Paul teaches in this passage that if you are a Christian, then you have died to sin and you have started a new life in Christ. That is definitionally part of what it means to be a Christian. You're dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. And so he says in verse 1, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? He's answering a common objection to Christianity in the first century. The Jews who rejected Christ as the Messiah and the Savior and the Son of God, they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. If salvation and righteousness and holiness and justification, if all of that is a free gift of God's grace, you do nothing to earn it. You can't work for it. You can't acquire it by your own effort. If that's true, then Christians can just do whatever they want. You can just sin and sin and sin and not worry about it at all because Jesus died to pay for it. That was their objection to Christianity. And so Paul's dealing with this objection. What should we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? He says, no way. (laughs) Absolutely not. And what's his reasoning? How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says this is a contradiction of terms. It's like a married bachelor, a Christian who willfully lives in sin. It's a contradiction of terms because what it means to be a Christian is that you've died to sin. This is how he says it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. You've died to your sin. And look, new things have come. Now, we're going to get to this, but Paul makes it clear this doesn't mean you're never going to be tempted to sin. It doesn't mean that you will no longer have any desire to be lazy or lustful or selfish or greedy. It means something much more powerful than that. It means that sin has no claim on you. That's the idea. It means that all of the guilt that you have incurred because of your sin and all of the penalty that is stored up, that you have earned because of that guilt, was utterly paid for in Christ, in His death, in your place on the cross. This is what Paul says in verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Do you see what Paul is saying here? This is actually remarkable. He's saying, if you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, what He did for you on the cross, then when Jesus died, you also died. That's what he's saying. When Jesus died, you died. So you've probably heard it said before, he died that we might live. Have you ever heard that phrase? And of course, that's true. That's part of what Paul's saying. But I think according to Paul, it would be more accurate to say, he died 
that we might die, that we might live. That's what he's saying. If you're in Christ, then the claim sin has on you, which is the death penalty, both physical and spiritual, that claim is void. It's nullified. It has no more power. And not only that, you are a new creation with a new resurrection life in Jesus. So you've died to sin, you've been resurrected to new life in Christ. And this is why you have new desires. If you're a Christian, you have new desires. If you're a Christian, then you will, you will have a love and a desire for God's Word. I've seen this so many times in my life where people, before they're a Christian, they have no interest in the Bible. None. If anything, they think it's weird. They're kind of indifferent towards it. If they have some exposure to it, it like doesn't make any sense to them. It's like a fairy tale. It's a bunch of nonsense. And then they become a Christian, and it's like overnight. The light bulb goes on, and they say, whoa, I get it. <laughs> I understand what the Bible is saying. Not every minute detail, but I, I, under, I can read it, and I understand it, and I just can't get enough of it. They're excited about the Word of God. I've seen it over and over again. If you're a Christian, you will have a desire to be with God's people in the local church. And you can't help it. I remember when I first started following Christ, this was in the early 2000s, and it was, I started going to Walnut Creek Church, and there was no Walnut Creek, Altoona, or downtown, or Southside. There was only the one in Windsor Heights, and it was much smaller, and that little building, not much bigger than this building here. And I remember the, there was no chairs, it was all pews, and the pews were from like the 1970s, and they had orange, like burnt orange upholstery <laughs> on the pews. So, I mean, it was not an impressive facility. And I remember, the, I remember thinking, these people are weird. <laughs> they, don't have, they don't share my same interests. We're, we're not like on the same wavelength as, as far as what our lives are about. But I just wanted to hang out with them. <laughs> I wanted to be around these people. I wanted to go to church. I couldn't help it. It was almost like, why? Why am I so drawn to these weird Christians? If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you're going to have a desire for God's people. Just like you can't help but love your family members, your kids, your parents, your brothers and sisters. You almost just can't help it. Even when they hurt you deeply, even when there's distance between you, there is a unique, inexplicable bond. And that is how God's people view each other in the church. You will have a desire to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ and to worship alongside them. If you're a Christian, you will have a strong desire to honor God and walk in obedience to Him. You'll have a desire to share the gospel and teach people the truths from the Bible because you are a new creation. Now, there's a tension here because remember we said, it's not that your desire to sin goes away, that you have no desire, no temptation. And so on the one hand, it's like, I want to share the gospel. I want to read my Bible. I want to worship with God's people. But then on the other hand, you still on occasion feel a desire to look at an image or a person who is not your spouse. Or you feel a desire after somebody offends you to hold on to that bitterness and to talk badly about them to other people. Do you know what so-and-so said to me? <laughs> you know what they did to me? Can you believe that joker? 
and you have a desire to be lazy, and you have a desire to be selfish and greedy, and do you ever think, okay, which one is the real me? Do you ever feel that way? Which one is the real me? Is it the one that loves to share the gospel and is concerned and has compassion for the lost, or is it the one that wants to sit and watch Netflix and eat ice cream and have nobody talk to me? Which one is the real me? Well, what Paul says is that if you're a Christian, then the new you is the true you. The new you in Christ, the real you, is the one that died with Jesus to sin and lives with Jesus to God. This is his point. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I think marriage is a great illustration of this. How your identity is shaped and how it shapes the way you view the world. So imagine if right after you got married, now I know some of you here this morning are not married, just still imagine this. I think you can easily do this mental exercise. Imagine right after you get married, you immediately go back to living like you're single. So in terms of how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you organize your schedule, and even in terms of how you think about and approach the opposite sex. So you're married, but you just start living like you're single. How's that going to go? Not good. <laughs> it's not going to go. It's not going to go well. And when you get married and make your covenant vows, you are saying yes to your spouse. That's a big part of what you're doing. But you're also saying no to everyone else for the rest of your life. That's how marriage works. That's what marriage is. So in one sense, you could say you are dying to your singleness. That part of your life is over. You're dying to the possibility of romantic involvement or intimacy with anybody else. And you are alive to this new life of oneness with your husband or your wife. You are married. That's part of your identity. But that doesn't mean you're never going to be attracted to another person of the opposite sex. In fact, you almost certainly will be at some point to some degree. And so here's, I think, part of what Paul is saying. This is a little picture of what Paul is saying. If you're a married person, you've died to your singleness, but then you feel an attraction to someone else who's not your spouse, that attraction doesn't make your marriage invalid. It doesn't determine that you're actually not married. It's the opposite. Your marriage determines what you do with that attraction. Because when you said yes, when you got married, when you made your vows, you already decided Way ahead of time, that part of me is dead. You decided what you're going to do with that attraction. You decided, I'm going to guard against it, and if it ever, it, if it ever creeps in even a little bit, I'm going to crush it. <laughs> I will kill it. That's part of what it means to be married. You died to the possibility of anyone else so you could live with your husband or wife. And so what Paul's saying is, why would you ever want to go back why would you ever want to go back? Now, this is where the analogy breaks down a little bit because there are plenty of married people who desperately wish they could go back to living like they were single. But God is not like a human spouse. <laughs> God is perfect. God is satisfying. God is loving. God is faithful. And sin is the opposite. It's corrupting. It's draining. It's condemning. It lies to you. And so Paul says, why would you ever want to go back to that? Your identity in Christ shapes 
the way you view sin. But so does something else. He's going to argue now that your design in Christ shapes the way you view sin. And here's a really key principle for understanding Romans 6. The principle is this. In Christ, God has designed you with a new purpose. This is really important to understand. When you become a Christian, you are given many things. You're given the Spirit of God. You're given righteousness. You're made holy. You're adopted as a son or daughter. But you are also given a new purpose. In many ways, it's your original purpose. Now, what does that include? There are three elements that Paul is alluding to here in Romans 6. There's many more, but I think he has these three in mind. First, Christians are designed to worship God. If you're in Christ... Dead to sin, alive to God, you are designed to worship Him. Verse 10, for the death He died, talking about Jesus, He died to sin once for all time, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So, you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We talked about being dead to sin. What does it mean to be alive to God? means many things, but first and foremost, it means that you bring God glory. This is the primary thing I think Paul has in mind. This is what it meant for Jesus, that Jesus brought glory to the Father. You see this right before his crucifixion in John 17. Jesus is praying. We get this little window into the personal prayer life of Jesus. He's praying to the Father, and he says this in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So all of Jesus' perfect obedience, perfect life, ministry, teaching, culminating in his betrayal and torture and crucifixion and resurrection. He says, I've completed it. And what does that result in? It brings God glory. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Being alive to God means you bring God glory. In Genesis chapter 1, you remember that God said when He made people, He made man, He made them in His image and likeness. What does that mean? It means many things, but part of what it means is that the fundamental design of humanity is that you would image God. You would reflect God, who He is, what He's like, what He says, what He values, you would reflect the glory of God to the world around you. That's why Adam and Eve were made, to image, to reflect God's glory. And Adam and Eve failed to fulfill that design. They didn't live according to that design because instead of worshiping God, they chose sin. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, you remember this, Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So this is the reason God made Adam and Eve was to image, to reflect His glory to the surrounding universe. 
and they failed. But then Paul also, Paul also said in chapter 5 that Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus was the perfect reflection of the image of God in man. If you want to see who God is, you just look at Jesus. Now, Jesus is God, but he's God incarnate. If you want to see what a life lived to the glory of God looks like, you look at the life of Jesus. He glorified God perfectly in every aspect of his life, internally and externally. And that's what we're called to do as Christians. Okay, that's a big task. (laughs) How do we do that? How do you bring God glory with your life? Well, it's first through worship. Worship. If you want to live according to your design, you must worship God. What does that mean? Jesus explains it this way. In Matthew 22, verse 34, it says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Of all the commandments in the first five books of the Bible, what's the most important? Verse 37, he said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. So a life lived for the glory of God is a life lived with God himself at the gravitational center. That's what worship is. Remember the little models of the solar system in elementary school and how those work? You have the sun, it's in the middle, and then you have all the planets and they have different orbits but they all orbit around the same thing, which is the sun. And the reason for that, I'm not a physics major, but is because the sun has mass. It's so massive that it has a gravitational force. It just sucks everything in and everything orbits around the sun. And a life of worship, heart worship for God is a life where God himself is at the gravitational center. And so what that means is your affections, the things you love, the things you're excited about, your resources, your time, energy, money, your thoughts, your words, your attitudes, your actions, they are all shaped by and constantly going back to the person and work and word of God. That's worship. It's a holy preoccupation with God. Do you ever feel preoccupied with things? A lot of times it's like anxiety, stuff going on at work. Oh, sometimes it's a hobby that you're really into. Sometimes it's a sports team that you're following, but you're just, you just, your mind just keeps going back there. It just keeps going back there. Worship is a holy preoccupation with God. And worship in the heart always moves a Christian to the next element of their new purpose in Christ, which is number two, Christians are designed to serve God. Christians are designed to worship God. Christians are also designed to serve God. And here's a key principle that I think is really helpful. If you think, man, worship, it still feels a little bit mystical. (laughs) Like, how do I wrap my hands around that? How, How do I actually do worship? Here's a principle that's helpful. Worship in the heart always leads to service with the hands. Worship in the heart. Now, you don't want to get this backwards because sometimes you can get serving with the hands without worship in the heart and that can be really bad for your soul. 
But the Bible says that God, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Worship in the heart always leads to service with the hands. Again, look at how Paul explains the problem of sin and corruption in Romans 1, verse 25. It says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. True worship of God begins in the heart and the mind, but it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay there. And so we've been talking in Romans how Paul is teaching that the gospel, the good news, is that salvation from sin and death is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. You do nothing, God does everything. You don't earn it. He gives it to you as a free gift. And that is good news because we would be utterly lost if that wasn't true. That's the primary message of the book of Romans. But look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2. These things are not in contradiction. This is just the the logical flow of, okay, if the gospel is true, now he articulates that same truth in Ephesians 2.8. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Amen. I mean, that's good news. But then look at what he says. Okay, what's the logical next step? Verse 10. For, why did God do this? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. And that's really important, which means if you're a Christian, okay, God's got work for you to do. (laughs) Did you know that? A lot of people don't like to hear that. If you're a Christian, God's got stuff for you to do. Really important stuff. And this has huge implications for how you view sin because if you're going to worship Jesus and serve Jesus, then you can't worship and serve something else simultaneously. This is what he says in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. And you will worship and serve something. There's a great theologian I know. His name is Cole Myers. He's actually a pastor at our Windsor Heights location. But Cole once said this, and I just am going to quote him because it's really helpful. There is no such thing as a masterless human being. That's true. There is no such thing as a person without a master. You will worship and serve something. There will be something that is the gravitational center of your life, both in your heart and your thoughts and with your resources and your energy. And what Paul is saying is that apart from Christ, sin will be your master. Sin will be your master. This is his point in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign. That means it's your master. It rules over you. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And so Paul's point here is that apart from Christ, it's greed that's your master, or it's lust that will be your master, or it's pride that will be your master, or bitterness, anger, gluttony, selfishness. Something is your master. And people generally don't like to be enslaved. 
especially by a cruel master. They want to be free. But here's how deceptive sin is. This is how this works. You can, you can be free from the master of lust by serving instead the master of pride. Have you ever seen that happen to somebody? Maybe you've experienced it. You can say no to the master of laziness by instead saying yes to the master of greed. Do you see that? This is how tricky sin is. And so your life can change radically even under the rule of sin. You can go from being an alcoholic couch potato to an Ironman triathlete and still be dead in your sin. So how do you escape that cycle? How do you get free? Paul says, verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God. And all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. The way you get free, the way you get off that treadmill of serving sin, serving sin, serving sin, is offer yourself to God. Offer yourself to God. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian life is that true freedom, real freedom, is saying to God, I'll be your slave. My whole life is yours. I offer it to you freely. That's where freedom is. That's where freedom is, brothers and sisters. But, as you know, talk is cheap. (laughs) So you could say, God, my life is yours. I'll be your slave. I'll offer myself to you. But then you're going to have to deal with the reality that God has actual work for you to do. And if you're serious, he's going to put you to work for his kingdom and for his glory because he loves you which leads to the third element of God's design. Number three, Christians are designed to accomplish God's mission. You are designed in Christ to accomplish His mission. There is a purpose and a mission that you have to embrace if you want to be free from sin. And here's another principle that is true, is that what rules and reigns in your life, whatever that thing or that person is that is at the gravitational center, that is what determines your mission. It's just the way we are wired as human beings. We can't help it. Whatever rules and reigns in your heart is what determines your mission. This is why Paul, I think, uses military imagery here. Verse 13, he says, do not offer any parts of it to sin as what? Weapons. Where did that word come from? Weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for instead righteousness. And so here's the picture. Paul says the parts of your body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, they're like weapons. And in fact, I don't think he's even being purely metaphorical here. I think the parts of your body actually are weapons. In fact, I think you could make the case that the human body with all of its parts is the most powerful physical weapon 
in the world. Think about this for a second. Of all the creatures in our world, I mean, just think about some of them. Just killing machines. <laughs> Great white shark, or a lion, or a grizzly bear, or a silverback gorilla. I mean, think about some of the creatures on planet Earth. Of all of those creatures, who's the apex predator? It's human beings. And it's not even close. It's not close. Now, if you try to do hand-to-hand -hand combat with a grizzly bear, it's not going to go well for you. But it's human beings because we were made in God's image with intelligence and creativity and morality, which means we can accomplish remarkable things with our bodies and our minds. And we can accomplish those things either for good or for evil. Just think for a second of all of the evil that is happening in the world right now today that people are doing with their hands or with their eyes or with their tongue. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that, Christian. Remember, your body is a weapon. And what are weapons used for? Why does he use the word weapon? Weapons are used for warfare, for battle. That's what they're used for. And what determines your mission in warfare? It's your commanding officer. That's what determines your mission. What rules and reigns in your heart is what determines your mission. And so if you want to walk in the freedom from sin that is yours in Christ, you must embrace God's mission. He has a mission for you. What is the mission? Well, there's many places that talk about this. I think the most succinct, clear, abbreviated articulation of the mission is when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. After he's resurrected from the dead, at the end of Matthew in chapter 28, it says in verse 18, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why does he say that? He says, listen, I'm the commanding officer. Look right here. It's me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So listen up. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a lot of things you could say about this. As far as what, what is the essence of God's mission? I like to think about it this way. God's mission is for you to love people the way God loved you. It's for you to love people the way Jesus loved you. Jesus came to die so that you might live. And he sends you to die so that others might live. That's the mission. And he calls this discipleship, which is teaching and training people to follow Jesus. What all does that include? Well, think about it in terms of Paul's instructions in Romans 6. He says, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. I was thinking this week as I was reflecting on this passage just about our Lord Jesus. And I think, how did Jesus 
use his hands. What did he do with his hands? He healed people. He fed people. He touched people who were considered untouchable. He worked hard with his hands to bring life to others. How did Jesus use his eyes? The Bible tells us he looked at people with compassion. He looked at people and he did not see them in terms of what they had to offer him, but he saw their spiritual condition. He said he, he looked at the crowds and he saw that they were lost and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. What did Jesus do with his tongue? He didn't tear people down. He didn't lie. He didn't gossip. He taught people how they could know God. He preached repentance and faith in himself so that people could be free from sin and have life eternal. And if you're a Christian, God has designed you with the new purpose of making disciples by doing those same things. But you have to make God's mission your mission. Which means you have to make other people finding life and joy and freedom in Christ your business. That's your business if you're a Christian. That's what you're to spend your time and energy and money and relational capacity on because that's what your master did. And that's what he's still doing. And if right now in your life you're not involved in God's mission to make disciples and you begin to consider what it would take to offer yourself to that mission, here's the lie you're going to hear. Okay, you're going to hear it in the world, you're going to hear it from people in your life, and you're going to hear it just within yourself. The lie is, if I offer myself to God and obey God and adopt God's mission, then I'm going to miss out. I'm going to miss out on all this other stuff that's really important. And I'm not even talking about stuff that's sinful. I'm talking about stuff that's good. I'm going to miss out on the life that I want to have. I won't get to experience all the things that I really want to experience if I make this my mission and my focus. I won't make the money I need to make. I won't get as far in my career as I need to get. My kids won't have the kind of childhood I want them to have. If I trust God, I'll miss out on life. You're going to hear that lie when you consider adopting God's mission. And the reason I know that is because it's not a new lie. <laughs> this is the original lie. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. What did the serpent say to Eve? He said, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. This is the original case of FOMO. <laughs> That's what's happening. If you obey God, you will miss out on life. That's the lie. Paul says it's the opposite. It's the exact opposite. Obeying God, trusting God, adopting His mission as the overall purpose of your life, that's where perfect freedom is found. That's where real, deep, lasting satisfaction is found. So how do you do this? How do you embrace your new identity in Christ and walk in your new design in Christ? I'm going to give you two applications. Number one, let go of your old life. Let go of your old life. Those of you guys who have known me for a while or know me personally know that I love Chinese food, okay? That's one of my weak, 
weak points in my life is Chinese food. And once upon our time, our family used to eat at Panda Express quite a bit. And every time, every time we would go to Panda Express, I would order the same thing, and then I would feel totally sick afterwards. I mean, I would just feel so gross, sick to my stomach. And every time I would say to my dear wife, McKenna, I'd say, don't ever let me do this again. Never again am I going to eat at Panda Express. And then a few months would go by, and I feel fine. There's not that many restaurants in Altoona. And I'll think, you know what we need? <laughs> we need to drive through Panda and get some orange chicken. That's what we need. And I would go right back to it. And sin works the same way. Sin makes you sick. That's what it does. And you give into it and you experience the consequences of sin and then you think, never again. <laughs> I'm, I'm so done with that. But then that sickness, it subsides. You get back to equilibrium and you go right back to the sin. And then you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Here's a question for you to consider this morning. Are you holding on to sin? Are you holding on to sin in your life right now? Now, if you are and you're a Christian, why does that happen? Well, it might be because there are elements of your old life that you're also trying to hold on to. So you don't want to sin. You say, ah, that's, that's bad. I don't want that. That makes me sick. But you do want to hold on to a certain friendship or a relationship that is constantly leading you to sin. You don't want to sin, but you do want to hold on to that hobby or that job or that financial goal that keeps leading you to make sinful decisions. You don't want to hold on to sin, but you do want to keep getting on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube all the time or listening to a certain podcast, or watching a certain Netflix series, and then that leads you down the path where you keep falling back into sin. And if you want to stop yo-yoing in and out of sin, you have to accept that your old life is dead. Your old life is done. And that means there are certain aspects of life for you that are going to be off the table. And we don't want to be legalistic about this. This is not the same for everyone. There are certain things that are wise, probably for all Christians to avoid, but everybody's wired differently. And so before the Lord, you need to figure out, okay, God, what aspects of my old life am I holding on to that I need to let go? That's first, let go of your old life. Second, make God's mission your mission. Make God's mission your mission. You ever heard the phrase, know your why? It's kind of catchphrasey right now. A little bit cliche, know your why. But there's a very helpful principle there, which is that avoiding sin for the sake of avoiding sin will not work. It won't last. It's like trying to lose weight just because you want to lose weight. That's very rarely going to be sustainable. It doesn't work. You need a goal. You need a purpose. So if you say, I want to run a marathon really bad. I want to run a marathon. And I can't run a marathon because I'm 100 pounds overweight. So I need to lose weight if I want to run the marathon. The weight loss, it's just a natural byproduct of my mission. It's just one step towards my goal, which is to run a marathon. And the same is true with your old life. If you want to become more like Jesus, you have to adopt his mission. Now, how do you do that? 
I'm going to give you just two quick things. One, make worship a central part of your life. Make worship a central part of your life. Because we live in a fallen world cursed by sin, there is so many things screaming for your attention, trying to get your focus, that gravitational center of your life, aimed somewhere else, anywhere else. Anywhere else. Sports, hobbies, work, kids, family, stress, your yard, your garden, just anything besides Jesus. And if you want to worship, you have to make it a central part of your life. Be in his word, be in prayer, gather with his people. You need to adopt practices and disciplines that put Jesus, boom, right in front of your face all the time. And when you do that, if you're a Christian, your soul will sing. You will develop more and more of an appetite and a hunger for worship. Make God's mission your mission by making discipleship a central part of your life. I ask you this question, who are you discipling right now? Who are you discipling right now? Who are you praying for? Who are you praying that God would reveal himself to them? God would save them. God would teach them his word, make them more like Jesus. And how invested are you in that process with that person? Now, I don't want to shame anyone, but I think, man, this is what we're called to. This is what we're called to give our life to. And we're going to have different capacities, different seasons. A lot of you guys have young kids. I know we're busy, but man, this, this is like, this is what we're called to. Make discipleship a central part of your life. One of my main prayers for our church is that we would have a culture of evangelism and discipleship. That'd just be like who we are. When you come in here, that's the culture. It's like in, it's the water that we swim in, that the normal experience of each person here would be that there's regular, weekly, organic touch points with other Christians for the sake of sharpening each other, helping each other be more like Jesus. That's where freedom is found. That's where life is found. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given us a new purpose, a redeemed purpose, a mission that's hard. This is hard. It's not easy. But God, it's good. It's worthwhile. In fact, it is the greatest thing we could live for. Jesus, you said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. God, we can invest in eternity. What a gift. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that is dead to sin. That a church that in our personal lives, in our relationships, sin just doesn't have any power. We're not interested in it because we're worshiping you and we're living for your mission together. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.